0: Take our Bibles and turn to the Book of Ruth. While you're finding your way there, let me just say something about our personal habits for reading the Scripture. One, you should be reading the Scripture. Um, you just you just should. Um, the Bible says that there's something about the reading of Scripture, specifically the memorization of Scripture, that has an effect on holy living. The psalmist said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I even see dangerous trends in education away from rote memory. Just when you run into an issue, you look it up. God's intent for the Scripture is that we would familiarize ourselves so much so with the Scripture that by the prompting of the Spirit as situations we may not be aware of come before us that we are prompted to remember a word from God that may keep us or protect us or direct us in that particular moment. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the word of God. That means that every word in God's word is good, profitable, and helpful for the believer equipping us for every good work. You need to read the Bible every day. In fact, it would be a bad habit to read the Bible more than one time a day. But as you're reading the Bible... I want to encourage you, maybe at times, to take the challenge of reading whole books together. Um, I I say this because Ruth is before us tonight, and Ruth, like many books in the Bible, is intended to be read in a single setting. You'll miss some of the artistic beauty of Ruth if you don't read all of Ruth in a single (laughs) setting. I think in the chronological Bible's uh, reading plan that many of you are going through, and I am too. Ruth is a single-setting read, but there are many other books of the Bible that are that way as well. For instance, the letters of the New Testament. This is kind of my soapbox issue, but this is one of this is one of one of very 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 few weaknesses when it comes to most expository preaching we pull a few verses together and we preach on those verses and then the next week we come back to the next verses and in doing so we miss the full picture of what's being communicated in the letter think for instance about the book of philippians how did that how was that letter to be delivered and presented to the church at philippi paul wrote the letter and he sent it by a messenger and that messenger was to call the church together have them all sit down and he would read from philippians 1 through four. I would imagine that was an eventful Sunday morning, and, and uh, as he presented the letter, they were to respond to what Paul had instructed them to do, but you'll miss something. If you've taught the Bible in Sunday school classes, small groups, or whatever through the years, how many times have you ever gotten to the end of a book and thought, man, I wish I would have been aware of that when I was teaching chapter one, because it all, it all works together. The Bible is not haphazardly thrown together. It is intelligently designed by God uh, it's a, it, it often in a quite beautiful way, and Ruth Ruth is one example of um, how God communicates uh, the story of redemption in in, a, in an intelligently designed, artistically beautiful kind of way, like the Book of Judges, which was the focus of our study on last Wednesday night. Ruth is understood to have been written by Samuel, Samuel for whom First and Second Samuel. Uh, The next two books in your Old Testament is named. If you remember the end of our discussion of Judges on last week, we talked about the fact that Samuel is writing the book of Judges uh, during the reigns of Saul and or David. As you end the book of Judges, you have this uh, series of events that demonstrates a very troubled background for the ancestors of Saul. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the Benjaminites were so problematic that the other 11 tribes of Israel nearly killed them all, and they had to import wives for the Benjaminite men because the situation had become so bad for the tribe of of Benjamin. You realize later in the Old Testament when the northern kingdom separates from the southern kingdom, there are 10 tribes in the north, there are two tribes in the south. But Benjamin is never mentioned. Judah is the name of the southern kingdom. It's named after the one tribe because Benjamin had all but been eradicated because of things that had happened historically. Benjamin had a troubled background. But God was working providentially to preserve the tribe of Judah. Throughout the history of the Scripture, even back to Genesis 38, there's a strange turn of events that happens there that preserves the line of Judah. Judah. Judges is showing us as it closes the superiority of a king from the tribe of Judah over a king from the tribe of Benjamin. What Judges is saying to those of David in Saul's day is this. Yes, you need a king. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what is right in his own eyes. Those aren't good circumstances. The book of Judges makes that abundantly clear. But you don't need just any king. You need a God-anointed and God-appointed king. You need a king of the tribe of Judah. And of course, from this side of the resurrection, we understand that we need a king even better than David. We need a king in the line of Judah, but we need a king that rules everlastingly, without fault, without error, whose reign is not ended by his abrupt death. We need an everlasting king of the, of the tribe of Judah who rules and reigns eternally over our life, who can do everything for us that need be done. We need King Jesus. Theologically, that is the new covenant message of the book of Judges. In, in a way, um, we, we have a, a further argument in favor of David as king, in favor of the line of Judah as the preferred line for good kings in Israel to preserve the line of Judah that David could ever become king in the first place. And what you have here is a beautiful story of God, again, working providentially to preserve, to preserve the line of Judah, not just that David, king over Israel, could be born into this world, but that ultimately and finally Jesus, the king of all the earth, would be born in a Bethlehem manger. The names that you'll be introduced to here, uh, Ruth and Boaz and Obed, their son, and those that come after them uh, will be somewhat familiar to you, not because you've read of them in the Old Testament, but because you've read of them in the New Testament in the genealogy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Ruth plays an important uh, role. It it fills an important uh, otherwise void in the Old Testament in communicating to us how God was at work in the tribe of Judah down through history in order that David might come about as he did in his own day. We're going to read a lot of the book of Ruth, so hang with me, and uh, you're going to get a a, a dash of Hebrew language lesson along the way as some of the names that we're going to read have very specific meaning that help us to sort of appreciate the beauty of the story itself. Look to Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, during the time of the judges of Moab for a while, the man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the land of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband Elimelech died and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth. And after they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. I said to you a moment ago, we'll get a dash of Hebrew here because the names are significant. The first significant name is the name of the city they were from. There's a famine in the land, and the famine is so severe that they leave Bethlehem, the terminology there behind Bethlehem is bet lechem, which means house of bread. The famine was so bad that there was no bread in the house of bread. So this is a bad time in Israel's history, a time of oppression. We could surmise that perhaps uh, there's an invading army, army, there's difficulty as a result of God's judgment against the land. This is, after all, during the time of the judges During this famine, during this time when there was no bread in the house of bread, Elimelech, which means God is king, takes his wife Naomi, which means pleasantness, and they move to the territory of the Moabites. There they have two sons, Malon and Kilion, whose names may be uh, something of a foreshadowing of what would come of them. It simply means Malon means sickly and Kilion means weak or failing. They have these two boys, and those two boys marry Moabite women while they're uh, there during the famine that had uh, put down the house of bread, or at least uh, robbed the house of bread of, of any food whatsoever. Elimelech dies, and so Naomi is left a widow, um, which in ancient Near Eastern culture would have, would, would have been okay. At least she would have been provided for through her two sons, except that Malon and Kilion die as well. And Ruth prepares herself in the following verses to set out in the direction of Bethlehem in hopes that the famine had relented there. In verse 6, the Bible says, She and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave the land of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. And she said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you, if you've shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. She kissed them and wept loudly. And they said to her, no, we will go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Now listen carefully to what she says next. Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, do you follow what she's describing here? There's a cultural and even a religious practice uh, that Naomi has in view here when she says, no, just go back to your mothers, to your families. She says, I'm too old to have another husband, meaning I'm too old to take another husband and have another son so that you might have another man to marry. The, the practice is called the law of leverite marriage, wherein a kinsman redeemer, someone who was a blood relative, usually a brother, would marry the wife of his brother when he passed, the widow of his brother. An arrangement was made, in relationship would bear the name of the deceased husband. Are you all with me? So that his name, so that his family lineage would be carried on. Now, if he already had sons, that's sort of a different deal. But if he died without sons... His brother would marry that woman, and the first son born to that marriage would carry his name, and the rest of the children from that point forward would bear the name of, of the new husband. That seems sort of a strange thing from our cultural perspective. That would be scandalous in DeSoto County. You'd probably whisper about that, but it was quite the norm in the days of Ruth, and it continued to be a normal practice. In fact, it's a, it's a biblically ordained practice in many ways. Um, even through the time of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was approached by the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, and they said, there's this woman, and she married a man, and then he died. And then she married his brother, and he died. And then she married his brother, and then he died. And then she married the next one until she had married seven brothers, and they all died. One, she should have been under investigation. (laughs) but, But two... Jesus says, you don't understand that it's not like this in the kingdom of God. You don't understand the power of God, nor eternal things, for in heaven there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage. They're, they're speaking against the, the cultural background of this practice of Leverite marriage, where the brother or brother-in-law, rather, would, would marry the widow so that the family name would be carried on. And she simply says, there's not enough time left in my life and, and, and Ruth and Orpah, you're not at a place in your life where that's an option for you. Go back to your families. Go, go back home and, and find for yourselves husbands. Now, look what she says in verse 13. She says, No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord, Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, this is probably secondary to what's intended here by Ruth 1 and verse 13 but I, I'd like to ask you, do you think that her fate, her fortune here, is the result of the Lord's hand turned against her? In a sense, maybe not. But I, I, I want to, I, because I, when, when we say things or we hear things like that, our immediate reaction is to absolve the Lord of any responsibility of what's unfolding in someone else's life. And I just want to remind you again that even when it's a painful providence, that no detail of our life has escaped the attention of our Savior, that nothing is permitted to disrupt, to discomfort, or encourage that does not serve God's good purpose for us in our life. And and I think that's important because when you have that kind of perspective, you're able to say what Job says quite eloquently, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. So that when the diagnosis is not what you had hoped it would be, and you cannot see for the life of you why this painful thing has happened in your life. You can rest confidently in the sovereign lordship of Jesus over your life. That even in the valley of the shadow of death, he is actively working his plan for your life. Again, that's probably secondary to what's intended by Ruth, Ruth but But I think that's an incredibly important concept for us to get into our heads and our hearts. In verse fourteen, again they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother in law. But Ruth clung to her, and Naomi said, Look, your sister in law is going back to her people and to her God. Follow your sister in law. But Ruth replied, Do not persuade me to leave back to, to leave you or to go back and not follow you, for wherever you go I will go, and where you live I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so uh, to me also, and, and, and so much more severely, if anything but death separates you and me. This is the wedding passage, which has always been funny to me that this is a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law, not a wife or a uh, husband speaking to a spouse. Um, th- that, that mother-in-law that may grate on your nerves six months from now um, is intended to be loved and, and cared for and devotion and faithfulness shown to her, uh, even as Ruth shows uh, faithful love and devotion here in our passage. Ruth is faithful to Naomi even during this desperate period of her life. Naomi saw in verse 18 that Ruth was determined to go with her, and she stopped trying to persuade her. And two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. Mara just means bitter. She, she's changed her name from pleasant now to bitter. Verse 21, she explains, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty, Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the land of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess, and they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 2 gives us some insight that Naomi and Ruth don't know at this point in the story. Verse 1 says, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side named Boaz. He was a prominent man of noble character from a family. Now, that's background that Ruth and Naomi don't know. They don't yet know that there exists a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer is alive and well in the house of bread. There is a candidate for Ruth's next husband in the city of Bethlehem. Now, in our culture, that's not necessarily a game changer. There are candidates for husbands all over the place, ladies. You might have taken note of that. But in in this particular cultural context, Boaz represents the possibility of redemption, both for Ruth and Naomi. Now, they don't know he's there yet. They're going about life. And in chapter 2 and verse number 2, Ruth asks Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone who allows me? Naomi answered, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth, Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. And she happened to be in the portion of land belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Do you think she just happened to be there? She was brought there by the providence of God. God actively involved, again, in the preservation of the line of, of Judah. Now, there's, an, there's another Old Testament concept practice here that's at work in the middle chapters of Ruth that is just ingenious. And if we could ever figure out how to do this in a 21st century context, it could just be a, a, a world changer. So the system for providing for the needs of, of the needy in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant was that if you were gathering the, the wheat harvest or the barley harvest, that what would fall by the wayside, you were required to leave there. And anyone who had a... He, he, he notes that she's working diligently and faithfully, that she's working hard, and then once he realizes who she is, he knows her reputation. He knows that she's a woman of, of good character, and in verse 12, he's granted her permission to continue on with the harvest uh, with his people, and he says to her, may the Lord reward you for what you've done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord, uh, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come. To take refuge. And, and so this sort of continues on, and uh, Ruth goes home, and she tells Naomi, hey, I met this man named Boaz today. And Naomi is astonished at what she learns. And she says, oh, God has shown us favor. And Mara knows pleasantness once more. Mara is transformed in an instant back into that once pleasant person known as Naomi. Naomi. And she reveals to Ruth that Boaz is a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. And, and she tells her in verse 20, this man's a close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. In verse 21, Ruth the Moabite said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they finished all my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it's good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. And Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, um, Naomi takes a more aggressive approach to matchmaking in chapter number three. One of the things that's always interesting to me about the study of Ruth and Esther is that there's a tendency to want to make both Ruth and Esther the example that every woman ought to follow after. Um, I would tell you, ladies, that when it comes to relationships, you probably don't want to go the way of either Ruth or Esther. We'll look at Esther um, a few weeks from now. Um, But in case you've not read Esther carefully, it's an ancient Near Eastern version of The Bachelorette, long before NBC ever had the idea. (laughs) And here, Ruth gets pretty assertive as well. There's an element of mystery, there's some cultural barriers that keep us from understanding completely how Ruth approaches Boaz, but she does so convincingly. In chapter 3 and verse 1, the Bible says, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find security for you so that you'll be taken care of? Isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash. Wash. Put on your perfumed oil and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll explain to you what you should do. Now, women should not be at the threshing floor. We know that much from the book of Ruth. But Naomi says, dress up. on your best wash that's always a good way to begin a date wash (laughs) and go down and present yourself once he's eaten his fill and made himself merry with drink once the day of work is done you go down and uncover his feet whatever that means and lie down and he'll explain what you should do boaz wakes up at midnight and there's ruth the bible says he's startled don't you know he was startled and he asks of her, who are you? And she explains, I'm Ruth, your slave. And she asks that he would spread his cloak over her for you're a family redeemer. In verse 10, Boaz responds, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You've shown more kindness now than before because you've not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I'll do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Now, Ruth may have not done it the way we'd want our daughters to do it. In fact, she did not do it the way we'd want our daughters to do it. But the way Boaz interacts with Ruth, Ruth here is, is a really noble, beautiful thing. He allows her to stay there through the evening, but the Bible is careful to note that they arose before morning while it was still dark. In in other words, he would not allow Ruth the embarrassment of waking up in the daylight at the threshing floor where she shouldn't have been in the company of a man who had been both eating and drinking the night before in a compromising kind of position. So they get up the next morning and arrangements begin to be made. In verse 15, he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing, hold it out. And when she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl and she went into the town. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked how to go. My daughter and Ruth told her everything the man had done. What Boaz told her that night at the threshing floor was this. I'm willing to be your kinsman redeemer, but you need to know that there is someone who's a closer relative than I am. You you didn't necessarily have to be a brother, but you had to be a blood relative. And the first responsibility fell to the nearest relative. Boaz says, "I'd, I'd like to have you as my wife but we have to give this closer relative an opportunity to be your redeemer before my opportunity arises. Now, one thing that Boaz does very cleverly is that he makes the idea of taking Ruth as a wife seem very unpleasant when he presents his case to the other potential uh, kinsman redeemer in chapter number four. He, he, He presents some baggage that we haven't been aware of until this point. She, she has a mortgage on some land outside of town, and whoever takes her as a wife is going to have to pay the note on this property as well. That's a, in our terms, that's what Boaz tells the other person, and an agreement is ultimately made. In verse one, Boaz, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there, and soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. He called him by name and said, Come over and sit down. So he went over, and Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, Sit here. And they sat down, and he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the land of Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do so. But if you don't, tell me so that I'll know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. He answered, I want to redeem it. Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi... You'll also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Now, this name business is big. So you just got a mortgage, and then you're going to get a wife, and then your sons are not going to bear your name. You're going to perpetuate this other man's name. Your children are going to perpetuate the name of Malon or Kilion, whichever one was the husband of Ruth. Now, for us, that's not a major deal. We'd love them like our own, and there'd be very little difference that would be made between them and the world around us. Our families would make little distinction whatsoever, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this is a huge, huge deal. In verse 6, the Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I'll ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. So, This whole business of of being a a, a kinsman redeemer it it becomes a, a much larger issue as the history of God's redemptive work unfolds. If you if you're gonna be a kinsman redeemer, here's what you gotta do. You you first you've gotta be a blood relative. Second, you've gotta be able to pay the price of redemption. Leviticus 25 is where you go to learn about Leverite marriage and the kinsman-redeemer. Leviticus 25 and Numbers 35, if you want to make a note of those two passages. And there are other ways that the kinsman-redeemer could work. You could be a person who was sold into slavery, and your kinsman might come and pay the price of your redemption. In Numbers 35, there's a situation where someone is killed unjustly, and the kinsman-redeemer is actually the avenger of their blood in Numbers 35. So, this idea of, of redeeming one's family, uh, it operates in a number of different ways. But in every case, you've got to be a, a blood relative, you've got to be able to pay the price of redemption, and you've got to be willing to do it. There was a closer relative, but this relative was unwilling to be her family redeemer or her kinsman redeemer. In the end, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Verse 13 says, when he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and took care of him. The neighbor women said, "A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed, which means servant. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, who fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nason, who fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz." who fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered David. In other words, this is the lineage of David. Here are are his credentials. Not only has God worked in David's life to preserve him from a lion, a bear, and a Philistine giant, but God was working providentially in David's ancestral lineage to preserve the line of David even before the time of David. Now, those names in verses 18 and following may sound familiar to you because of your readings in the New Testament. The Bible begins, uh, the New Testament begins in Matthew 1 and those first 17 verses where the genealogy of Jesus is given and ultimately Obed, Jesse, David, and all of the other names mentioned here are listed there for us in the line of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus born of the tribe of Judah. The concept of kinsman redemption seems to hang over Jesus' life, even in the Gospel of Matthew, but certainly in other Gospel accounts as well. Jesus, one who is related to us by blood, Jesus came and walked, walked among us. He took on flesh. He took the form of a bondservant. He became like unto us in order that he might be our redemption. He came unto his own, John says. He took the form of a bondservant, Paul says. In the book of Hebrews says, He was in all points tempted, just like us. Jesus came to dwell in our midst, to be among us and, and with us, and in so many respects, like us as our blood relative. He was able to pay the price of redemption. Jesus could afford our redemption by his perfect righteousness. He is the only one that could afford the price of our redemption. Have you thought about that? There, there, there's probably been other people in the world that wanted to save people, that wanted to help people. We feel compelled to be of help to others. We want to do what needs to be done in the lives of other people to see them come away from their sin and be all that they can be in Christ and live to the glory of God and be whole and healthy and and happy people. But it's a price. We simply cannot pay. We can't afford it. Jesus paid the price by His own perfect righteousness. What we could not do, He has done for us. And He's a willing Redeemer, isn't He? patient, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Aren't you glad for that? Isn't God good? Now, here, here's another thing. Isn't the book of Ruth just kind of ordinary? Isn't it? You remember a few weeks ago we pointed out that really as important as miracles are, I believe all of the miracles in the Bible as you should. But really miracles in the Bible are, are relegated to some very short periods of time in the history of the world. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus and the disciples. Outside of those three windows in history, most most of what God does, he does under ordinary circumstances. You may be looking around in your life thinking, this is a pretty ordinary existence. Not a lot of excitement in my life. I'm just sort of ambling through. Most days, unaware of what's happening to my left or to my right. And I just want to encourage you that it's often under very ordinary circumstances that God does his greatest work. Don't, don't fail to look around and see what God's doing in ordinary people under ordinary circumstances in some very ordinary places. He seems to like to work under those conditions.